Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. Richard Lane with you on Friday, November the 8th. This week we're talking Syria. In a moment we'll hear from Dr. Barbara Tomczyk from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States about a viewpoint concerning access to women's health services in Syria. But just before that, to mention, also published online today, Friday, November the 8th, two infectious disease experts from Germany write in correspondence that we publish online today about the threat posed by the polio outbreak that the World Health Organization announced last week. The letter talks about how there's a very real danger that polio outbreaks could spread beyond Syria to countries like Turkey and other affected areas, particularly in countries close to Syria where polio vaccination uptake is not high. But back to the main focus this week, and that is the critical issue of how women, women of reproductive age, how are they being affected by the Syrian catastrophe? How do they access women's health services, not just within Syria, but also in refugee camps in the countries bordering Syria too? So to find out more, I spoke to one of the authors of The Viewpoint, that's Dr. Barbara Tomczyk from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta in the United States. According to the United Nations Population Fund, there are an estimated 1.7 million women of reproductive age in Syria who need access to women's health services such as antenatal care and delivery services. We read, we see, we hear about the Syrian conflict a lot. I mean, what an absolute humanitarian catastrophe it is. There seems to be this never-ending situation going on. Can you just give some detail of how the conflict is specifically affecting women, and particularly women of reproductive age? The first example I'd like to say is the limited and failed access due to the conflict to provide humanitarian assistance to the Syrian people, which is a violation of international humanitarian law and could ultimately result in loss of life. For the next example, I'd like to highlight that protracted emergencies can weaken health systems and thus negatively impact the ability of the relief agencies to meet the demands for critical services such as emergency obstetric and neonatal care. For example, Women's access to safe deliveries, as well as antenatal and postnatal care, have been negatively impacted, and recent reports indicate that a growing proportion of total deliveries are conducted by cesarean sections in cities like Homs, Aleppo, and Damascus due to safety concerns and fears of having an unattended birth at home. Cesarean sections, deliveries, and at-home births are associated with risks that can increase maternal and neonatal morbidity and mortality. The last example shows some issues in the surrounding countries hosting Syrian refugees. An assessment in Egypt reported that primary health care is expensive and not easily accessible by Syrian refugees. In Lebanon, Syrian refugee women reported they go less frequently to antenatal care visits and delay pregnancy due to high out-of-pocket costs associated with these services. Also, in Lebanon, the impact of the refugee influx has been felt among the host community and at the clinics and hospitals. For example, a report described a 50% increase in patient caseload at health clinics and an increase in ambulance wait times due to the high demand for transport. What should be done? What's the call to action to improve access to women's health services, both within Syria and in the neighboring countries where women are increasingly becoming refugees? Well, one thing that should be done is to include long-term planning for comprehensive reproductive health services in order to prevent excess reproductive health-related 
morbidity and mortality. Another thing that needs to be done is to include women in the decision-making process in order to improve the health of the Syrian community. In neighboring countries, as the number of refugees continues to increase, the strain is being felt on host governments, the local population, and the UN relief agencies. One way to improve health services for women in this setting is to focus on continued rather than intermittent provision of essential reproductive health services that would include such things as increasing human resources, ensuring a steady supply of drugs and equipment, collecting systematic data on reproductive health indicators, and lastly, securing the necessary funding. It is also important to recognize that the rapid influx of additional people in need of services is a strain on the health system. Therefore, in order to meet the needs of both host and refugee populations, more focus should be given to the integration of services within the national health system vis-a-vis support to host governments. Lastly, to improve the situation for women and girls, new approaches for reaching hard-to-access populations within Syria and improved coverage of non-camp refugees are needed. There is something called MISP, MISP, isn't there, which basically is how we, from a public health perspective, have learned from previous conflicts. One thinks of Iraq, maybe Afghanistan. How does preparedness planning from other conflicts, and how can MISP, this program, or first of all, can you just quickly outline what that is, but how can our experiences from previous catastrophes help with the Syrian crisis, particularly with regard to, to women's health services? First, the minimal initial service package, or MISP, is outlined in the Sphere Humanitarian Charter and the minimum standards in disaster response. The MISP for Reproductive Health is a priority set of life-saving activities to be implemented at the onset of every humanitarian crisis. It forms the starting point for reproductive health programming and should be sustained and built upon with comprehensive reproductive health services throughout protracted crisis and recovery. The MISP should help in conflict situations through the following. To improve coordination of reproductive health services, a lead agency for reproductive health should host regular stakeholder meetings to facilitate the implementation of the MISP. To prevent and respond to sexual violence, there is a need to make clinical care available for survivors of rape. To prevent maternal and neonatal morbidity and mortality, emergency obstetric and newborn care services need to be available and of high quality. To reduce HIV transmission, agencies must ensure safe transfusion practices. And to plan for comprehensive reproductive health services, they need to be placed within primary health care structure. If the missed components such as basic and emergency obstetric care are systematically implemented in a conflict situation, life-saving interventions would then be available, especially for the most vulnerable part of the population, such as pregnant women and newborns. And finally, Dr. Tomchek, can you explain, you mentioned in the paper, the importance of cash, cash support, cash assistance to women. Is this specifically women in in, uh, refugee situations? The most important rationale for expanding access to cash assistance is to mitigate risks for sexual exploitation and abuse. Although provision of cash assistance is important, Syrian women and girls are also at risk of negative reproductive health outcomes and are in need of comprehensive services 
to prevent avoidable excess morbidity and mortality. Well, it's a fascinating read and really good to discuss the viewpoint with you. Dr. Barbara Tomczak on the line from CDC in the United States. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you very much. Many thanks again to Dr. Tomczak and to you all for listening. See you next time.